0: A reading from Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of of our god and father to whom be glory forever and ever amen i'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in grace and the grace of jesus christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all evidently some people who are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of christ but even If we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord.
1: As postmoderns, it's hard for us to hear because we're postmodern. We'd like to keep our options open. But also, we're pragmatists and we have evidence abundant that this whole religious experiment called the Christian church has failed pretty miserably. And we want to keep our options open. And so, to say there is only one gospel is to say something very radical and very hard for us to hear especially in this day and age especially in uncertain times 1st Kings uh, 18 20 to 39 is this great story of Elijah confronting Israel with the historic uniqueness of Yahweh the story begins they're gathered at Mount Carmel and Elijah issues the historic challenge, the, the challenge that is old as the Exodus itself, the end of the Exodus, when Israel came to possess the land, Joshua, Moses' successor, says, I don't know about you, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he issued it as a challenge, and the people of Israel said, yeah, we're on board, we are We are with you, Joshua. Fast forward a bunch of generations, and Elijah's Joshua challenge is met with crickets. The people are silent, the text says. They do not roar in affirmation of Yahweh's deliverance and liberation. It's like, God who? Uh, Baal. Baal. Baal's our guy. But Baal controls the seasons. We want a good harvest. I mean, we're ultimately pragmatists here. We want a good harvest? We need to worship the God who's in charge of the calendar. That's Baal. Yahweh is invisible. You know? He never shows up unless in, in, unless he's asserting his authority. So, you know, Baal's our guy. And Elijah is stunned by this by the silence it's one thing to have an argument it's one thing to put forward an alternative and and to engage in debate and and to discuss and to create that culture of conversation it's another thing to just meet the affirmation of is yahweh lord with nothing So Elijah digs into his prophetic bag of tricks. And after he whines a little bit, I'm the only prophet of Yahweh, and there are 435 of you. After he whines a little bit, and he's going to do a lot of that in these next chapters in 1 Kings, um, Elijah, for his great reputation as a fiery prophet of God, was was a little bit of a whiner, too. It's kind of why I love him so much. Elijah reaches into his bag of tricks, and he pulls out something that's very common in the ancient Near East, but not very common in Israel's faith and life. And that is, he proposes a divine competition. Let's see whose God is bigger. He has what Peter Wagner uh, used to teach at Fuller Seminary, used to call a, he, he, he engaged in a power encounter. Whose God is more powerful? Is it, is it, Baal? The, the God that you think controls the calendar and provides the harvest? Or is it Yahweh, the silent, invisible God of whom I speak? Let's let's find out. Let's have a competition. All the prophets of Baal and all the people of Israel go, okay, this this is how we get to shut this old geezer up. We're going to have a competition. We're going to kick his rear end and we'll show him. So this divine competition is proposed and accepted. And what's ironic, the way the, the way the author and editor of of the Kings frames this is that it is the acceptance of the challenge against Yahweh that draws the Joshua-like affirmation of you bet let's have a competition that feels like something we can get behind. so elijah says great build an altar i'll build an altar put your sacrifices on the altar put my sacrifices on the altar and elijah does some very curious things with his altar he digs a trench around it and and the text says you could put essentially about eight pounds of grain in this trench. You could put a lot of seed here. And, and that's because grain was the offering of the poor. Elijah was building not an altar just for those who were wealthy enough to afford to sacrifice an ox. He was building an altar that everybody could come to. He pours water on it. He creates this un, uneven playing field. It's like, yeah, you you try to start your briquettes over here. I'm going to douse mine in water. So I so, and we'll see who, we'll see whose God is bigger and better. All day long, the prophets of Baal jump around the altar and sing and dance. They cut themselves. They do everything they can to get their God to act on this sacrifice. The text tells us in dramatic fashion, and Frank, you just read it beautifully. You read it like you're an actor. Is there something that, you thought about a career? And God loves you, and Jeff has a wonderful plan for your life. No. Um, Dramatic fashion, evening comes, and and Elijah just prays a simple prayer, just simply prays, so that he can remind the people of the truth that Yahweh is God, and whoosh, it's all consumed. Yahweh scores a consuming victory. The prophets of Baal are left bloody and exhausted and hoarse and defeated. The Apostle Paul tells the story in a very different way. He's writing to the Galatian church And Paul, and and I chose this cat picture deliberately. I am so glad you're here, Tim. I thought of you when I saw this picture. I said, this this has got to be in the PowerPoint this week. That's why you greeted me this morning. That's right. That's why I greeted you this morning. Paul's confronting the Galatian church with the unique centrality of grace because he is astonished. I mean, astonished doesn't even begin to capture Paul's emotional state. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church about sin, about suing other believers, about incest in the church, he does not use incendiary language that he uses in the opening stanzas of Galatians. He is astonished, annoyed, ticked off with these folks. He begins with... A regular salutation. He, he cites his credentials. His credentials as an apostle, his, his, his authority to even write these churches is not in his own merit, but because of the resurrection. His credentials are grounded in God's action, in the call of God that begins with the resurrection of Jesus. And he reminds the Galatians from the get-go, at the very front of this letter, that God's mission in Christ is to rescue humanity from evil. That that's, that that's the gospel in action. To rescue us. To come to our aid in our brokenness and in our uncertainty and in our pain and in our sin, and to make us whole. And so he is astonished, then, beginning in verse 6. He asserts the singularity of grace. He says, look, the, the gospel's point, the whole purpose, everything around God's desire to rescue us, is because God is a God of grace. And yet, you're deserting that notion. You want some other gospel where if it is to be, it is up to me. Instead of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Diatribe in verses 8 and 9 is some of the toughest language in the New Testament. Our English translations are a little bit sanitized. They're, they're, they're designed to, to so, so that we remain, you know, Christians who talk nicely to each other. Because Paul's not talking nice here. He is, he is as angry and as pointed as he is anywhere in the New Testament. To turn away from grace. I mean... Yeah, we we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But to turn away from grace? Are you kidding me? How could you do that? And so he reminds the Galatians of the foundations of grace in in his own ministry and in his own message. And he goes so far as to paint a historical picture somewhat different than the book of Acts. Nikki and I were talking this morning about how people remember stuff, and the book of Acts remembers Paul one way, and Paul in Galatians remembers himself another way. He went off and he didn't receive teaching from anybody except Jesus. Paul's making the point that it's Christ in us that matters. It's Christ in us. It's the unique centrality of grace that is at the center of our faith. We have but one gospel.
2: An old story, a bold story. Of Elijah as showman of Mount Carmel. Setting a grand stage on which God would tell the tale of his power. All smoke, no mirrors, full flame. Theatrical, yes, but hardly a game. Call down fire from the God you serve, said Elijah to the followers of Baal. Then I will do the same. The deity who sets fire to the altar and swallows the sacrifice in flame is the one true God. Time to go all in, thought Elijah. Time to set the record straight. To stack the deck, Elijah ordered his wood and sacrifice doused in water till the altar all but floated away. No man can ignite wet wood. Of course, it was no man Elijah called on. Label his risk calculated. His faith, daring and confident, invites us to be and do likewise, because our God is true. And as Paul reminds us, his gospel is the one we can count on.
1: There is only one gospel. There's only grace. A grace that is a unique foundation by which we navigate in life. We call that redemption. God is acting in and through Jesus to rescue the world from the grip of evil. And the Eucharist reminds us of redemption, it reminds us that Jesus paid a price for us. And that the power of evil no longer enslaves us. Evil's back has been broken. We have been set free. Our challenge is to live as if that's true. The gospel is a unique narrative with which we identify ourselves. We have been adopted. Evil Orphaned us. It's adopted us. It's given us a home and an identity. He's named us and welcomed us to his table. And the Eucharist reminds us that all are welcomed at Christ's table. Not just those of us who've got it right. But all of us are welcomed at the table of the good news. And this gospel, this one gospel, this unique gospel of grace is a unique promise through which we have hope. It is discipleship. It is God shaping us to serve Him and the world with hope and justice. The call of the gospel isn't just for us to have a nice time with Jesus. It is to equip us to be the rescue swimmers of God's effort to redeem the world. We are called to jump into the deep end and to be the person who swims to that one in need, to offer hope, to offer justice. To bring peace. To be an agent of shalom. That's discipleship. The Eucharist calls us to a whole new way of life. A way of life that's no longer centered around my needs and my particularities, but is instead one whose, a life whose vision is cast on the world. And we begin to see the world through God's eyes. We begin to see our neighborhood and our watershed and our planet and indeed the cosmos as a place that God is redeeming. And He calls us to join Him in that effort. It's only one Gospel. It's only grace that redeems us, adopts us, and disciples us. And so this morning, some questions for us to think about. What is the story that shapes your life? What What is your gospel? Is, is it self-fulfillment? Is it, uh, you know, I'm going to be all that I can be? Is it individual rights that, you know, I have certain, certain things that I'm entitled to? Is it the policy? personal identity, well I'm just made that way so therefore I'm okay or is our gospel our good news the story that shapes our life is it the grace of Christ and so how do you need to be rescued how does the gospel of grace play out in your life how is God messing with you To bring you from needing rescue to being rescued, from being orphaned to being adopted, from being without hope to being filled with hope. How do you need to be rescued? Will you be like Israel before Elijah? and simply be a mute spectator to the powers of the age? Or will you see Christ at work and become an active Jesus? Ultimately, you're doing what you do for one of two reasons. To serve oneself or to serve God. Which leads me to one more thing. Was John Newton, ship owner, man who made the Middle Passage, and later in life, was with the Clapham Group and Will, William Wilberforce and others to England's participate slave trade. The writer of Amazing Grace who near the end of his life said, my memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. If we only remember those two things, we've got the gospel. Because there is only one gospel. Thanks be to God for his word.